So, so you talk a lot about ESG and it's what I do for a job. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously, but it's kind of like a really vague concept. So start from the beginning. Where did ESG start and how did it come about? Welcome to ESG Now. I'm your host, Matt Muscardi, and that was part of a conversation, a long conversation, I had with my wife, Courtney. Okay, so I'm Courtney Rowe, and I'm a pediatric surgeon. Specifically, I am a pediatric urologist, but if I say urologist, nobody knows what I am. You might remember her from the very first teaser episode where I asked my family what I did for a living. And I've been working in environmental, social, and governance investing for a little more than a decade now. And her question, where did ESG start? That's what we're going to talk about today. And this is the first of a two-part episode where we'll go from ESG's beginnings right through the modern ESG investor. And for today's episode, we're going to cut it into four short chapters. And by the end, we might decide that the acronym that is ESG it really just obscures the fact that this kind of investing, it's pretty much existed forever. Chapter 1. Your religion is your financial advisor. So, environmental, social, and governance investing, ESG investing, it can probably be traced back as far as investing itself, like since investing began. And the earliest permutations of what we might think of as ESG were pretty much religious. There are Jewish texts that are more than 3,000 years old that had references to what and how disciples of Judaism should invest. In the Talmud, it says it's prudent to have one-third of your wealth in real estate, a third in business, and the other third on hand. If you were an adherer to Islam in the 7th century, certain practices were forbidden, including accepting interest, or riba, under the authority of hadith. And Catholics actually had a similar rule about taking interest. And Pope Benedict in the 1700s, he claimed, quote, Whatever is received over and above what is fair is a real injustice. That was my friend Marcos. He's a professional voiceover artist. I figure he'll help me keep history a little bit lively today. But religious institutions, they were central in the daily lives of most people throughout Europe, the Middle East, and North America. And as a result, they drove a lot of practices for their followers. But there was still a separation between investing and the rules of the faith. But everything you're saying just sounds logical. So what's the first time that somebody, that, that a layperson like me would recognize it as ESG investing? Chapter 2. Financial outcomes are secondary considerations. It wasn't until arguably later with the Quakers and the Methodists that the idea of responsibility was much more coherent in investing. John Wesley, he was one of the founders of Methodism. He said in a sermon in the 1700s, quote, No gain whatsoever should induce us to enter into or to continue in any employ which is of such a kind or is attended with so hard or so long labor as to impair our constitution. 
So basically, if you're going to make money, it shouldn't be in arduous labor conditions. And the Quakers similarly suggested that no money should be made from war or slavery. In these concepts, this was basically the birth of social responsibility in investing. Socially responsible investing, SRI investing, started here. Investments that either had constraints on what is considered responsible or places a social good above a financial outcome. And this type of investing would pretty much be unchanged all the way until the 1970s and 80s, when conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War or investors looking to divest from South Africa during apartheid were in the middle of their movements. Chapter 3. We find out what you really know. If you're a person looking to vote with your dollars in 1970 about Vietnam in the United States, there actually wasn't much you could go on outside of what was in the news. In fact, I found a single line in an annual report for the Diamond Shamrock Corporation, a company that to this day is involved in lawsuits around its role in providing chemicals for Agent Orange, the deadly herbicide used to clear out as much as 10% of Vietnam's jungles during the war. And that chemical, dichlorooxacetic acid, was also called 2,4-D, and it appears in this one line. To date, we have closed our flexible urethane foam plant in Plainfield, New Jersey, and our Newark, New Jersey herbicide plant, which produced 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. Construction is beginning on a new, modern chrome chemicals plant, which replaced two older, less efficient plants. And this is the only line in the report that mentions the chemical at all. Much less how much of it they make, much less who they sell it to, much less that the Vietnam War was even happening. Instead, a socially conscious investor had to rely on newspapers or some of these tiny niche data providers like Bowers and Cooper and the Investor Responsibility Research Center. It sounds to me like you're saying the exact same thing, except that the religious investors are just listening to what their church or their institution is telling them to not invest in. And the conscientious investors are just listening to what the news is telling them not to invest in. But then there's a tipping point. Chapter four. The milk spills. I don't intend to have a pun here. It's a tipping point for what would be an ESG revolution built around data. In 1989, the Exxon Valdez spilled 10.8 million gallons of oil in the Prince William Sound off the coast of Alaska. It was the largest spill ever in the United States. Environmental activists didn't just move to clean up the spill, they moved to prevent it from ever happening again. And part of that movement was the formation of investor-focused activist groups whose primary goal was to force companies to disclose more about what they do. And we talked about engagement on our last podcast about climate change. It's the process by which investors can make demands on what a company says and does. But the ESG data that is available today was largely born out of efforts of socially responsible investors since Exxon Valdez. And throughout the 1990s, investors started using engagement to target tobacco companies and proxy disclosure, and a whole range of social, environmental, and governance-related problems. The number of mutual funds and indexes that were born in that period included the Domini 400, which was later acquired by yours truly, MSCI. 
1995, the Socially Responsible Investment Forum estimated that there were more than $600 billion worth of investment assets that were socially responsible. But the real split between social responsibility and ESG might actually be traced to one organization. Because in 1997, the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI, it was launched by two nonprofit organizations, Ceres and the TELUS Institute. And the GRI would end up becoming a sort of standard for companies to report their environmental and social policies and procedures. And other standards would pop up over the next decade, things like the Carbon Disclosure Project and United Nations Global Compact. But the GRI, whether it meant to or not, it also created a whole new type of investor. More appropriately, it created a boring old type of investor. As more and more companies adopted it, the data it produced wasn't just socially responsible investor data. It started getting used by every investor. Because as Gordon Gekko said in the 1987 movie Wall Street, the most valuable commodity I know of is information. <laughs> Actually, I can't do Michael Douglas, sorry. <laughs> Next time on the ESG Now podcast, we'll go from social responsibility to what are the three big types of ESG investors today. And along the way, we'll uncover some myths and some truths about what ESG actually is and maybe get to the heart of what ESG is trying to solve for now. I'm your host, Matt Muscardi, and thanks for listening. And thanks to my wife, Courtney Rowe. If you want to know more about pediatric urology, you can follow her on Twitter. It's at Courtney K. Rowe. Also, thanks to Marco Santiago, who was the voiceover artist. If you want more ESG now, subscribe. We're trying to put out new stories every week. So find us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with part two. How can I tell if your mic's on or not on? Say check again. That's check. how you can tell. Check. <laughs> you just say check, check a bunch of times. Check. 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 Wow. I'm good at you this. Are, you are, check. You are check. absolutely check. ripping this. <laughs> yeah. Maybe less it's, it's good. It's good that I have other skills in life because I am not meant to do podcasts. Okay. Check. <laughs> check. <laughs> check. 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 getting better the msci esg research podcast is provided by msci inc's subsidiary msci esg research llc a registered investment advisor under the investment advisors act of 1940 and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the united states securities and exchange commission or any other regulatory body the analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance analysis forecast or prediction the information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.